Hello, and welcome to the Portlet Podcast, a podcast coming to you from the Portland Public Library in Portland, Maine. Portland Public Library has hosted writers for over 30 years coming to talk about their new works. Now a conversation series, we host writers in long-form conversation with a fellow writer or community partner to explore themes in the book, the writing process, life, and more. Catch up on all of our Portlet podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Let's listen. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Harkness. I'm the programming manager at the Portland Public Library, and we're delighted to be hosting this in partnership with Maine Inside Out, an organization here in Maine with which activates individuals and communities to imagine and embody freedom through art, advocacy, support, and transformative justice. Their work is led by formerly incarcerated people with a mission to build a world where everyone matters and belongs. In conversation today are Ravi Shankar, who will be talking about his new book, Correctional, with Rekha Sabranian. Correctional is a bold and complex self-portrait and port- self-portrait and portrait of America that challenges us to rethink our complicity in the criminal justice system and mental health policies that perpetuate inequality and harm. I will introduce the authors in just a minute. Um, And then Bruce King from Maine Inside Out will start us off with a welcome and a little bit about their work in our state. Ravi Shankar is an award-winning author and editor of more than 15 books and chapbooks of poetry. He's the founder of Drunken Boat, one of the world's oldest electronic journals of the arts and has been featured in the New York Times and on BBC, NPR, and the PBS NewsHour. He lives in Providence, Rhode Island. Sharika Subranian is a professor of humanities at the University of Houston Clear Lake. She was the first recipient of the Maryland Music Professorship in Women's Studies, established at her university in 2008. She published the monograph, Women Writing Violence, the Novel and Radical Feminist Imaginaries. She works on feminist and carceral texts from South Asian, African, and diasporic traditions. Uh, So Bruce, I'll turn it over to you and thank you everyone for being here. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for for having myself and making Maine Inside Out a part of this uh, presentation. Um, It's it's absolutely apropos. As was stated, uh, Maine Inside Out is an organization that is working to build a world where everyone matters and belongs. And so we use the mediums of art uh, that can be acting, spoken word, and any kind of engagement. But really, it's a means by which we um, engage young people. So system-impacted folks, uh, our ages really, we started in Long Creek. So we started with juvenile detention. But uh, we have all ages at this point. We work with uh, you know ages pretty much 12 all the way up to 30 something. Um, if somebody's a part of our community, they stay a part of our community. And that's really part of what we're trying to build with Maine Inside Out. Um, a big focus of what we're trying to do is really center uh, the stories of incarcerated people. And so it's it's so apropos that we're a part of this discussion that we get to show up here because I've gotten a chance to delve into Ravi's work and really see the way that he's utilized his own incredible spoken word to articulate his experiences, but also um, to center the the other individuals that he met throughout his his um, his stint, I'll say as we as we call it. Um, and so it's really about 
you know, reorienting narratives in a way that can create dialogue and create community. That's what we're trying to do at Maine Inside Out. So we're really hoping that this will encourage that sort of dialogue with individuals. And we're really looking forward to when the book is, is widely available. Um, <laughs> we're really on, on bated breath. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of a mouthful. I know I threw a lot at, uh, at you there, but I'm looking forward to hearing um, this conversation and how it plays out. And thank you so much. It's just, it's great to be a part of this arts community with this greater mission. So thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Um, wow, this is just incredible work that you are doing in Maine. Um, uh, and I'm going to reach out to you after because I want to connect you with some of my uh, incredible, uh, the work that's going on in Houston with some of my formerly incarcerated students um, and a nonprofit that one of them is running. Um, his name is Johnny Ward. So I'm going to certainly connect with you, Bruce. That would be incredible. Thank you so yeah. much. Absolutely. So I am so excited to be here. Um, I know people are exhausted by Zoom, but I am, um, uh, while I am fatigued with Zoom, but at the same time, I really appreciate the opportunity because I am really far from all of you. I'm in Houston, Texas. So without Zoom, I would not have been able to participate and speak to Ravi, um, Dr. Ravi Shankar today. Uh, so this is a real honor and privilege for me to be with all of you. Uh, you know, in the good state of Maine from the state of Texas. So um, Ravi, I would like to invite you to read a little bit from your beautiful memoir, uh, and then I'll follow up. Okay, sure. And uh, hi, everyone. It's great to be here. I'm actually in uh, Providence um, here, the uh, home of the Wampanoag and Narragansett people originally. And I will just, uh, I, I will read, um, and then we can start discussing. Uh, and so I won't even contextualize the book. I'll, I'll read you um, just the end of one chapter and then the very end of the book, which I have been doing a lot of readings and I've shared different portions. And this is one I haven't yet shared. And so um, this is the end of a chapter called Nomenclature. Looking reverentially and bitterly at the trajectory of Ravi Shankar, who, of course, uh, the sitar player, this is what this chapter is about, his life as a, and work as I lay prostate on my bunk before count, I see a viable model of how to be an artist in the world, never settling, but always pushing the imagination forward. Pandit Shankar, my namesake and burden, the man who inadvertently made me feel second best, a replica of myself, nonetheless represents a perfect fusion between the old and the new, between the staunch classicist and the progressive experimenter, his roving, unbounded, insatiable, and transnational creative curiosity, steeped in ritual and discipline, but pointed outwards towards play, is a position that I aspire towards every time I sit down to write, even in jail surrounded by men who seem not to know him or his legacy. When he finally passed away on December 12, 2012, at the age of 92, I wrote a brief elegy for him, Ravi Shankar and Ravi Shankar in the New York Times, and in so doing, made my final peace with him. I've decided to be glad that I borrowed my name from him, to be allowed to use it for a while before passing it along to the next Ravi Shankar. The chords of my own raga will be fundamentally different from his. They will be textured with the subjugated, and the marginalized with pride's relationship to shame and compassion, with the illusion and actuality of uniqueness, with the negligible of crucial distance between the most heralded and the most loathed among us, the ones traveling the world as superstars and the ones languishing alone in jail. 
My own raga will be less about mastery and more about error, less about the sound of God and more about learning how to hear my fellow humans. And then I'm going to just skip uh, here to the, uh, the epilogue right at the end of the book. Uh, and uh, then we can talk about the journey that uh, it's, we've taken here. <clears throat> uh, Brazilian, Brazilian educator and philosopher Paulo Ferreri defines humanitarian generosity as being motivated by a dehumanizing sense of paternalism and the egoistic interests of the oppressor. It's the reason why there are so many college courses on Marxism, racism, and the abolition of the prison industrial complex taught by professors who benefit from the very institutions they claim to critique. When Julie teaches classes in homeless shelters, she invites conversation that is inclusive, unafraid, difficult, messy, and courageous. Sometimes she will even invite her students home. And I believe that we have to dare to be just as vulnerable in our discussions about race and gender and class if we want to build a more equitable social order. When a sense of victimization is used as a bludgeon to perpetrate violence on another and thereby gain relevancy, uh, there cannot be true transformation or healing. Uh, um, uh, as, uh, as every aspect of my life continued to come under attack, <clears throat> for my own recuperation, I felt the need to return to Hartford Correctional five years after I'd spent 90 days of my life there. I wanted to breathe in the sweat and moldy cinder block masked over by industrial cleaner, sit in the visiting room in which Julie had waited for hours to speak to me through plexiglass, nearly being denied the opportunity due to wearing a sleeveless summer dress, perhaps reconnect with some of those men who might still be there. I had kept their pain alive even as I had secured my own freedom and still had their inmate numbers and their nicknames. I suppose I wanted to experience something akin to what veterans of war might feel upon revisiting a village they had occupied years before. But it was not to be. All my letters to the men whose inmate numbers I still had went unanswered. The Connecticut Chief State's Attorney and Commissioner of the Department of Correctioners ignored my request to speak to them, and then all correctional facilities went into lockdown due to the outbreak of COVID-19, a disease that first emerged late in 2019 in China and then spread to the rest of the world the following year. The risk of infection and transmission was particularly high in jails because of inferior healthcare, little access to proper hygiene, overcrowding, a general lack of testing, and a flux of bodies going in and out. There's no way that I was gonna be able to visit. Faced with the dilemma of wanting to re-enter a carceral space but being prohibited from doing so, I was forced to confront my own motivations in wanting to return to jail in the first place. Was I an anthropological tourist who had gone through an unfortunate time and wanted to capitalize on these experiences by writing this very book? Certainly my personal circumstances were very different than most of the men I had encountered while incarcerated. I had come from a life of relative privilege and returned to that life, even if I had constant reminders of what I had been through and how much I had lost. Formerly a tenured professor, now it was difficult to be hired as an adjunct to teach expository writing. Even when I had 10 times as many positive evaluations and recommendations to the two misdemeanors on my record that show up with every background check, the latter were all that seemed to matter. Julie told me that in the aftermath of my incarceration and the enduring reverberating public shaming, I had been changed. My shape had changed and was now a round peg, still trying to force my way into a square hole. 
to lose my tribe was devastating, but it compelled me to connect to real people, such as those working in criminal justice reform. I connected with a gardener in Providence who uses the cultivation of vegetables as one way to teach inmates actual skills that would allow them to become apprentice gardeners upon their release. I ran a writing workshop for a professional chef who teaches culinary techniques to young adults in the Department of Youth Services in Rhode Island. I met a former Florida cop who had risen all the way up the ranks to become a member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing and who described how over-policing certain communities and the incestuous relationship between some prosecutor's office and police departments has led to a corroding distrust in democracy. Well aware of my own difficulties in finding employment, I made an appointment with the director of a nonprofit that helps prisoners reintegrate into society. What she told me confirmed my worst fears. We're not a forgiving society, Mr. Shankar. The rates of unemployment are over five times higher for those who have a criminal record than those who do not. Prisoners are stereotyped on the basis of a conviction. The kinds of jobs that I help them get, the lowest of the low. If I can get hired, someone hired as a dishwasher or a janitor, it's considered a great success. If they can become a skilled laborer, a plumber, or barber, we celebrate it like we've landed a rocket on the moon. The irony, she paused a long time, that these men and women are some of the hardest working, cleverest people I've ever met. And I've been on Capitol Hill and lunched at Harvard. They're sorry for their mistakes and want to contribute to society, but no one wants to give them a second chance. And that's why the rates of recidivism are so high. These men and women want to work when they get out and have a stable family life. But guess what? If they can't pull down a steady paycheck, how the pinch are they supposed to resist the streets? The most transformative thing I did was join And Still We Rise, a Boston-based theater company run by Dev Luthra, a classically trained Shakespearean actor dedicated to telling the stories of those whose lives have been affected by incarceration. We get together every Thursday online, though I'm told in the past it was on a black box theater where everyone could improv and tableau. Now we put together ensemble theater pieces through video and even as we generate new material, we practice our blocking, we support one another through a crisis of housing or family difficulty, uplifting one another through art and companionship. It's the kind of community theater group that I would never have dreamed of joining while I was at Columbia, yet I feel somehow more invested and alive with them than ever. While I've been beleaguered and beaten down many times over the past decade, being part of this group reminds me weekly that even in my darkest moments, my privilege has inoculated me to a certain extent from the daily injustices faced by the Black and Latino communities, by, the, by women and the poor. Above all, this group reminds me to be humble and to be grateful, a lesson that is never finished, but which takes the work of a lifetime to remember and to enact. Lois, a grandmother and reformed drug addict who falls on stage and screen into character so convincingly that it takes my breath clear down to my beating heart, tells me about her family. I'm a mother of four sons and each one of them has been in and out of jail since they were little. First youth services, then the state penitentiary, then halfway houses but they are good boys. I raised them to know right from wrong. I had to work three jobs to pay the rent when they were growing up, so wasn't around as much as I wanted to be. Sometimes I blame myself, but then other times I think that's just the price of being black in America. We didn't ask to be here, but here we are. I guess I just feel blessed that they're still alive.
In December 2020, in a year that saw the death of George Floyd, Richard Brooks, Daniel Prude, and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police, a crane lifted a nearly 3,000-pound bronze statue from its granite pedestal, not far, far from where I live in Boston's Park Square, where it had stood since 1879. The Emancipation Group Memorial, itself a replica of Washington, D.C., statue depicting a godlike, fully attired Abraham Lincoln standing over a kneeling, nearly naked, still shackled black man. The man is, according to historian Kirk Savage, the very archetype of slavery. He is stripped literally and figuratively, bereft of personal agency, social position, and accoutrements of culture. Frozen forever in this unfortunate juxtaposition, the monument is not really about emancipation, but about its opposite, domination. If a better visual embodiment of white savior complex has ever been crafted, I don't know what it could be. Moreover, as cited in the Washington Post, of the more than 5,000 public statues depicting historical figures in public squares and parks throughout the US, less than 400 of these monuments are of women. We don't have to look that hard to see how racism and sexism color our governmental institutions and permeate our consciousness. Spearheaded by Boston artist Tori Bullock, the Boston Art Commission decided in 2020 finally to take down the statue, giving it the same fate as other Confederate and colonialist monuments around the country. Statues, unfortunately, are easier to move than minds. All it takes is a crane to hoist an offensive reminder of her history onto the back of a flatbed truck to be buried in some official depot's basement. But the reverberation of the colonial mentality continues in the inner workings of everyday life and stays buried within our institutions. Just by making a statue disappear or by entombing an entire class of people in prison will never heal the original wound that arises from the fact that nation building has been a brutal racist, inequitable practice that unjustly shapes the lives of generations of its citizens. For true reparation to happen, we must acknowledge the enduring legacy of injustice by confronting those who have been wronged and ourselves directly, while also doing the policy work behind the scenes to transform policing, adjudication, sentencing, parole, and reintegration. My own life only overlaps briefly with these larger social justice imperatives, though my experiences have made it impossible for me to avert my gaze while those around me still suffer and while others around me either intentionally or complicitly help cause those, that suffering. Those generations who come after us may well look at mass incarceration, social media shaming, the way we regard medieval bishops who, while building exquisite cathedrals, also came up with ingenious ways to torture their fellow human beings. We refuse each other's subjectivity because we're scared of difference. But your pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness doesn't threaten mine, so long we, as we can agree on the assumption of privilege that puts that goal at an unequal distance for each of us. I began work on this book because I promised the men at Dome 4 Hartford Correctional that I would help share their stories. They might never have the chance to get their voice back from the court documents and psychiatric records, but I can use mine to loosen their closed fists and reveal our shared humanity. Those men are all around us. I'm one of them. I've had to reclaim my own voice from the Hartford Current, the blogosphere, from Amma and Appa, from the lies I told myself because I was hurting and did not know how to confront the pain. I knew how to mask it, but never could quite drink or drug or fuck it away. There's so much I wish 
I could whisper in the ear of that awe-stricken boy lying on his back and on a rooftop in Madras, watching the swirl of stars overhead in a delicious moment of respite from the sweltering summer heat. Everything seemed imbued with such magical possibility. My cousins and I were separated by oceans, but we were family. You could eat sweet pungal with your hand or cornflakes with a spoon for breakfast. Somehow Pac-Man had reached the shores of India, but not Donkey Kong. It all made such perfect sense. Now I wake up each morning with the intention of perceiving again with such non-judgmental curiosity. Some days when I wrap my arms around my beloved, laughing after getting off the phone with my daughters, our dog sniffing and wagging around our feet, miso soup on the stove and the Japanese maple flaring darkly crimson in the window. Everything seems so tender and possible and alive and intended. I just never imagined that I would have to lose so much to come this close to feeling free again. Um, that's amazing. If everyone can take a moment to um, just recognize uh, Dr. Shankar's incredible words. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's just really uh, powerful for me to listen to your words come to life in your voice, Ravi. Mm. I really enjoyed listening, uh, especially uh, the nomenclature, but then this sort of updated uh, updating that you have done since the writing of the book. It's just beautiful. Um, so, I, you know, you've been, uh, I, I'll just uh, uh, speak a little before asking my question. Um, it was an honor for me also to be the peer reviewer for this the book manuscript. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a joy to read this book uh, and to see all that you had experienced and this really brilliant carceral critique that you've um, arrived at and, um, and the innate humanity that you, that you, um, you know, uh, speak, speak uh, throughout, throughout your narrative. Um, so for me, it's been, it's just really eye-opening to, to read your uh, narrative uh, and my own background, I just wanted to share that I'm um, just to name names here that I'm at the University of Houston, Clear Lake. And it's a very special institution, a small institution that's um, really built for working, working students, uh, working poor students, um, in, uh, started in 1974. But since the start of our university, we've had a program for incarcerated men. So that's been sort of contiguous with the history of the university. And I've had the privilege for the last 14 years of teaching students humanities in the free world and teaching in a men's prison. Uh, and that's, I feel you like, um, been really uh, pivotal, important part of my own um, uh, learning and growing. Uh, so, so it's just really uh, brilliant to read your work um, and how lyrical and poignant and beautiful you are as a writer, Ravi. Uh, so I wanted you to really, I wanna sort of um, go right where the difficult spot that you ended on in terms of thinking about privilege and thinking about marginalization, which you seem to do so well. You torque between those two poles really um, uh, very deeply. You plumb to the depths of that. So I want you to sort of go into uh, unpacking this model minority myth that many Asian South Asian Americans live with and how it worked for you through your carceral experience as well. Mm. Um, but just to think about uh, privilege and marginalization as you have come to understand it um, 
if you can just burst that open through the model minority myth. Well, thank you so much, Rick. And I think that's must be why I'm wearing red, so you can't see me blushing uh, from your kind words. Uh, uh, yeah, I think indeed, in fact, though the, the, the marginalization and, and privilege in some ways were the twin rails of my life, I realized as I was kind of unpacking my own um, childhood growing up in, in Northern Virginia with a loving Tamilian Brahmin family and having this idea of exceptionalism and then going out to school uh, and being um, discriminated against um, by virtue of um, who I was. And so I think very early on, um, uh, I had that, but um, certainly that was amplified um, when I found myself doing uh, these these 90 days. Um, it, uh, on the one hand, uh, I have benefited um, from uh, enormous privilege and Indian Americans are particularly some of the best um, considered, a, a, uh, if you look at uh, financial measures, most successful immigrant populations. But of course, that whole idea masks uh, uh, the populations of Cambodian and Bhutanese, uh, uh, <clears throat> and many other Laotian Americans who have a, a lot of trouble. And um, and in fact, I, I think that we have to keep in mind that that very uh, idea uh, of the model minority myth was invented by a white journalist for Time magazine. And in fact, to inject a, a measure of kind of racial animus into uh, to pit kind of one marginalized group uh, against another to say, why can't you be more like these Asians who are studious and diligent? And um, so, you know, I mean, that is, I, I suppose, uh, what I went through is uh, the uh, the greatest horror for um, certainly, I mean, for my parents who, I mean, uh, Amanapa didn't necessarily want me to write this book because having survived this difficult time, the normal uh, reaction would be to repress it and to push it aside. Um, but uh, what I realized I, was that um, I was really, I had benefited immensely from the very systems that were in fact keeping some of these men, um, they shared with me their stories, their dreams, their hardships. Um, and yet at the same time, as one of the men I met said, if your skin is darker than a grocery bag, you're one of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a way, and certainly, and I mean, I mentioned this in the book after 9-11, uh, also that there was a way in which I, I felt like I was being re-racialized in some way. And certainly this very first encounter that I write about, I, talk, I don't talk about, but a wrongful arrest by the NYPD, where race was certainly an, an element. And um, so I think it puts me in, in uh, an interesting perspective uh, to look at the system from both sides. And I was acutely aware, I mean, I, you know, compared to many others, um, my experience is minute. I just have brushed up against the system and by no means, you know, has it uh, kind of impacted and traumatized my life to the extent it has other people. Um, and yet that brief exposure uh, was enough that um, I can't unsee what I've seen. And it made me realize some of the real systematic problems that exist in our criminal justice system. Brilliant, that's great, that's great, thank you. Um, so I was just thinking as um, about uh, the complications of model minority as you broke down really well and um, how it also broke, uh, it was a way of breaking the collective right after post-civil rights is to think about the so-called good minorities versus the troublesome minorities. Um, so that's, that's great. And I was wondering how, when you are within um, serving time within uh, the unit uh, and how the racial lines get drawn and you, you write about that, I was wondering how the model minority Myth, myth continues to haunt you within those kind of um, uh, stratifications. 
and you also wrote in that moment when you're teaching the LEAP program, where you had a student named Tyrone saying, breaking down the racial code, telling you, well, that's why you're up there teaching and we're up down here learning. Um, so I was just wondering if you can just um, talk a little bit more, process it. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I have a friend who has some trouble with uh, the term POC, uh, uh, you know, people of color, because it does um, bring together, I mean, a Singaporean banker with um, someone who's born in the inner city. And I mean, I we can talk more about that, but I, I think that the collective voice that term gives, there is something um, to that. But yes, um, you know, on the inside, I was certainly, um, and I would be uh, loath to kind of, I think that term reverse racism is a, slight, is a loaded one. So, so that's not what I would use exactly, but I was certainly um, called by a variety of different nicknames from Abu Dhabi to 7-Eleven to Bin Laden. Uh, you know, I was, uh, um, and uh, there was this sense of my difference. I mean, I was one of the only South Asians. And I should say, this whole experience was very different than what I expected. I wasn't in a, a little cell. I was in a dorm with 60 other men. Mm. Uh, and um, I would say a good 95% of those men were men of color, um, uh, you know, either African-American, uh, Dominican, Senegalese, or uh, Mexican, Latino. Uh, and um, yeah, so I was already an anomaly as one of the few uh, uh, South Asians. And the, I, I wasn't, I mean, you might have uh, been uh, given this more famous name anyway. I'm quite immune to jokes about my name. And in fact, getting a nickname was a sign that you were integrated into this community. Everyone had nicknames. And so, you know, kind of even if it was a demeaning one, um, I, uh, it, it, I was actually kind of accepted um, by these men. And uh, it, it was um, that, you know, when you, you read about it theoretically and statistically, some of us have read the new Jim Crow and um, know about the racial disparity that exists, but then um, encountering it firsthand is really different because um, you realize the generational trauma uh, that mass incarceration has wrought. I mean, some of these men shared their stories. They had parents themselves who had been impacted and they'd had to grow up uh, with a single parent. And, you know, some of the circumstances, I, I met someone who had been smoking a joint and, and gotten arrested. It had a cash bond, uh, not very much. Uh, I think it was like $5,000 and you can pay uh, 5% 5, 5 or something to be released. And yet he wasn't able to put it up and no one on the outside was able to put it up. And he was going to night school, getting a degree in accounting and he failed out of school. He missed the birth of his first son uh, and uh, he lost his job. Uh, and he was had been in there for three months waiting for his case to go to trial and just been continued over and over. And, and these are kind of very uh, typical stories. Um, that, that I would encounter. And that I think was part of what kind of really um, made me really want to scrutinize what is really happening. How are we spending our taxpayer money? And in, uh, is the system that we have implemented working for any of us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, that, so this is again, uh, back to a very, very basic question, which I, I know you um, have answered in multiple venues. Um, and I feel like we're in a particularly polarized moment uh, all over, uh, locally, globally, nationally, back home in South Asia, India, uh, here. Um, so I'm just, uh, you know, wondering when you think of your multiple audiences, think of the guys back at uh, the unit where you were. Uh, and there are so many good memoirs of those who have survived the carceral uh, experience. Why read your book? 
Um, well, I, I mean, I mean, I can great. promise you, I'll teach your book. I will be carrying your book to my guys um, in prison. But I want to know why, why, why read your book, and what are you telling Amapa? Why, what are you telling community, your immediate, your larger, various communities? Uh, well, I, I think for me, it is evidence that um, uh, I, I use this uh, Japanese phrase right in the end of the uh, book, a wabi-sabi, um, which in, those of you might know in, in Japanese ceramics, um, if uh, you put a, something in the kiln and it, it um, cracks or it's not perfectly symmetrical, they will actually inlay that with gold so as to call attention to the thing that makes it unique and different and it actually becomes more valuable. And so in some ways, the scar is the source of the beauty. Uh, and so that was for me the really the silver lining in what I um, experienced was I encountered these men uh, I never would have uh, encountered and they shared with me these stories and I, I promised them that I would do something with them and that they said you have a voice um, we don't. Uh, and um, I, I think that uh, I also um, I hope that the book is appreciated for its literary craft and merits, but that it's not a, a static artifact, but it's something that compels people to get involved, to agitate for change. Um, and, you know, uh, I think this book is um, both, it's it's really many stories in one. It's, it's braiding together the stories of uh, my parents' immigration from South India uh, and my own upbringing as a bicultural American. Uh, and uh, it also is the story of mass media. I mean, uh, you know, part of one of the reasons uh, I, this book is called Correctional is because I wanted to kind of correct some of uh, those uh, newspaper articles that, that have been written about me. And I realized the, the limitations of uh, mass media. Uh, there's, there's also um, a strand about mental health. I mean, many of the men that I met had, might have had substance abuse issues or mental health problems. They weren't being addressed in prison, in jail. They uh, uh, and um, so that is also um, a strand. And then I also I have uh, architecturally these six letters um, that I use throughout the book, um, and it kind of uh, creates the spine. And each of these uh, letters is named after one of the six seasons in India. Uh, there is uh, the monsoon season, the season of heavy rain, and the pre-vernal. And, you know, when I was thinking about it, it felt a little bit like uh, the process of assimilation growing up was trying to hammer down these six seasons into four. Mm -hmm. And pair away, you had to leave parts of yourself um, in order to, to really fit in. And so I guess it was a, this is a way of kind of making myself whole. And um, while it is really a, an introspective book where I'm kind of taking responsibility for a lot of things, I think it is also really a story of America. It's a story of America that um, I didn't really know, but that exists today. It's, you know, the story of a country where we have these immense amounts of freedom and yet 5% uh, of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners are here. And when you kind of overlay with the racial demographic of who is impacted by this system, it becomes a really stark portrait. And um, so I think um, sometimes it's, it's uh, you read about this stuff journalistically and in other ways, but I, I'm hoping that my memoir, because it really is based on my own experience and uh, a voice that a lot of people hopefully can relate to, uh, um, will allow people to kind of re-see um, what is really happening. And then I've been told that it's a pretty fun book to read, that it's a page turner. And, uh, you know, uh, people have been asking, when's the movie coming out? So, I, you know, um, there is that too. Hopefully it's a fun read.
as well. It is. It is. It's absolutely a page turner. So we'll have to see if, you know, which uh, industry picks it up. Is it going to be a Hollywood or a Bollywood or alternative cinema? You know, it's just, it's great. Um, and as, as you were talking, I was thinking about the number of um, men you encountered and you want to tell uh, also share their stories, but not obviously speak for them. And you're so deeply aware of um, of the nuance of privilege. I was thinking of Basho because you talked about Wabi Sabi and Muga. I was thinking of the way when Basho used to write his poetry, um, uh, his uh, haikus, uh, he was traveling doing these journeys and he would get to these really important pilgrimage sites through great troubles and suffering. And he would get to these sites and then instead of writing exactly about that site, he would write about the poet who journeyed there before, um, several hundred years before. So he would end up honoring that poet. Um, so there was like a sort of a whole uh, lineage of poetry being honored uh, mm. in his journeys. And I feel like your journey, there is an honoring of the men you encountered mm. within the system as you're telling, telling the story um, with so much sensitivity. Um, so I'm, I'm just I'm just so moved by you, really. I'm just um, really spellbound oh, you. by your work. I mean, I have this long list of questions, but I just feel like you've been uh, saying such a wonderful, um, giving such wonderful responses. So I kind of um, have been going in all these different ways. Um, you used another uh, metaphor that was also very uh, engaging to me. It is when you were in Australia and you met an Indigenous person who taught you about the larrikin. And then you found yourself to be a larrikin. Can you just talk to us? Because in some ways you have a very global vision in terms of all the places you have traveled and the people you have connected to and the marginalized voices that you have woven into your vision. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, um, after all of this happened, I uh, had a, a, a fellowship at the University of Sydney in Australia and um, got my doctorate. And that's where I kind of finished working on this book. And there was a lot that I found uh, to like about Australian society. I mean, they have universal health care. It seems like sensible gun control. Everyone's paid a living wage. Um, yet, um, typical, similar to here, uh, the indigenous communities are over-policed, uh, over-represented in, the, in their criminal justice system. Um, but, uh, you know, the, maybe part of the difference is I always like to have a kind of historical viewpoint. And so while the, uh, America was founded by Puritans, right, Australia was founded by uh, convicts who were kind of kicked out of Britain. And they're the ones, the rum runners and bootleggers who are the ones who kind of Founded it, and there was this uh, Australian term that I encountered um, of uh, a larrikin, and it uh, maybe roughly, roughly, though it has a certain masculine inflection to it, almost someone who is um, a little bit of a, a, a prankster, uh, someone who believes that um, the rules that have come down from bureaucracy really interfere in the everyday workings of their life, and there's someone who doesn't mind kind of going around a rule or something in order to achieve uh, an end, and and someone who. Is is kind of um, playful, you may say, in, in the UK, taking a piss a little bit, um, but um, not intending um, ever to injure anyone. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that term kind of resonated with me, as did a lot of these Australian concepts that I never really uh, thought about. But kind of looking back at uh, the U.S. while I was over there was a really interesting exercise. And then also looking at the U.S. through the eyes of the Australians who have this very different idea. I mean, many of them think that we must be in danger as we walk on the streets because of uh, the huge numbers of uh, gun violence, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
there are some big differences. I mean, I think uh, Australia is the tenth of the size of of the U.S., and so there are there are problems in equivalency. But I think in in terms of policy, um, the Green Party uh, is in charge of Melbourne, and they have a truly diverse um, parliamentary system with a lot of different voices represented, and I, I found that very interesting as well. I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned history, and I'm certainly with you on that, um, because history comes into all, all that I also teach and um, the work that I do with the students. So this week is particularly meaningful. We are at Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. So I'm wondering how you are sort of um, where you are in your journey with uh, thinking about Thanksgiving and thinking about your own personal uh, narrative. Uh, if you mm. wanted to just share um, some historical insights, because that seems to be all over radio everywhere. There's lots of discussions taking place. Yes, you know, I mean, I, I have started and that's why I wanted to begin this reading by mentioning the Narragansett and the Wampanoag who were here, because in Australia, all public events are um, usually begun with by this welcome to country where the original stewards of the land are acknowledged. And, you know, while many of my Australian friends thought it was lip service, it didn't really do anything. I, as an American, was always deeply moved and touched when I saw that because it made me think, uh, can we imagine starting off uh, something acknowledging the slaves on uh, whose backs and labor the wealth of the nation was based? And uh, the, I mean, I actually, I was happy to see now some, there are welcomes information coming into the U.S. in, in some way, but, um, I, you know, I, I think... Uh, uh, I, it's not a time to um, lie, and I, it's a time of great gratitude, and I'll have family, I hope to connect with other family, I see mm -hmm. my cousin here, which is so wonderful, um, and, um, but I think it's also a moment to hold space um, for those who are marginalized, um, to um, pay respect to, to those who have come before us, uh, and to realize um, uh, that we are kind of immensely lucky. And if there is a way in which we can be more empathetic, um, you know, I, I like to think of th Thanksgiving and day of mourning together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a way in which you are being grateful and you're also lamenting and, and maybe hopefully using the holiday as a time to, uh, to reinvigorate, to recommit yourself to certain causes and to go forward with more hope and optimism that you can make a positive change in the world. That's beautiful. That's really wonderful. Thank you. Uh, that's very inspiring. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, one more obvious question is uh, food. I'm always curious about food. I love food. And I'm wondering what your, um, you know, Thanksgiving is looking like, because I'm also thinking about your carceral experience and the um, struggles around food and nostalgia around food. So, you know. yes. And, um, it is actually it's going to be really challenging between uh, my partner and I have we have six children uh, uh, who have vastly different um, diets. There's a, a vegan, a couple of vegetarians, a gluten free, a lactose intolerant. Um, so um, I think we've asked everyone to bring at least one dish that they will eat. Uh, and then, um, you know, I was thinking myself of contributing uh, curried butternut squash soup with some Granny Smith apples, um, which That's I've made before. Delicious. Seasonal. And, uh, and then get out of the kitchen and let everyone else do um, what they're going to do. Because then uh, I, I think we've, um, we'll have a, a, a pretty big table and an open table for anyone. Um, my partner, I think, uh, invited someone um, who she met at the dog park who lost um his parents recently and so um it'll it'll be a, a eclectic group around the table thank you
thanks for that conversation. And I'm so happy that we had such a good crowd um, because it is an important book and it's a it's a story that a lot of people can relate to and that uh, you know, as you said, is not written about. And it's um it's fascinating to hear to hear about it. I for one can't wait to get the hard copy and, and read it myself. So thanks for the conversation and thanks to Reka for the Thank uh, you. really great Thank questions. You. We did have quite a few questions in the chat and um I'll just go through them one one by one. I'm gonna uh, Bruce from um, Main Inside Out asked a question, and I wanted to remind people too that Bruce is here to answer questions too. So if you have a question for Ravi or Reka or Bruce, um, just chat them and I will, I'll, I'll pitch them. Thanks, uh, yeah, there's Bruce. Uh, so Bruce, I don't know if you wanna say this or I can read it. Sure, I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if it'll translate well because I got lost a little bit in the thought, but you know, in my, in my time incarcerated, which was about three and a half years and it was mostly done in federal time, I was surprised at how many, I mean, there were a lot of people from very disadvantaged rungs of society, but I also found a, a disproportionate amount of people with, uh, with fairly advanced degrees in academics specifically. Um, and that did not compute too well for me until I started thinking about components of deviancy and there were mental health components and things like that. But I, I guess I, I'm just wondering if, if it's just my imagination or if there's a correlation between between kind of various elements of society. I know when it comes to different regimes that are like more fascist, more um, obviously fascist regimes, they tend to target the intellectuals first because they're testing, they're testing the bounds of um, conformity. And so, and I'm wondering if that feels like a truism to you that maybe some of those, some of that conformity becomes challenged. And I don't know if that's your experience. Mm. But I found, I'm, I came across quite a few and I was really surprised. Well, we should we talk more about it because of course uh, your experience in a federal uh, would be very different than mine at a, a, you know, a Hartford Correctional, which is a county jail essentially. And so um, no, I don't think I met anyone with a doctorate um, where I was, um, but uh, I think it's, a, it's really, I mean, white collar crime. And I, I, one of the things we could always look at is the difference in sentencing between, uh, you know, white collar crime. Um, but I think um, there possibly is a way in which you want to kind of outwit the system or, um, you know, I, I think personally, I always had a certain oppositional uh, defiance disorder of some kind where, um, I wanted to know why I had to do certain things. I, I was always a questioner. I, I never could take anything just on the basis of some, someone saying, well, this is the way it's done and this is the way that you have to do it. I was someone that always had to test the bounds a little bit. And, you know, so I think philosophically made me a little bit of an anarchist growing up. But um, that would be fascinating to see, Bruce, to, if you looked at the kind of the professions of who does time. Um, I really couldn't speak to that without any more sociological data myself. But I, I think it's a fascinating premise. I think you did. I, that, that, that's kind of what I was what I was getting at. I think it. So thank you. Yeah, I think that that testing natural inclination to test um, because I also had it as well. And so I think that it is a, an experience that that some people have, and they're more likely to go outside of the boundaries of of what is considered norms, which is not one and the same as what Michelle Alexander and and those individuals that are talking about, which is really a direct targeting of certain c communities. But um, but free thinkers are, are naturally ch uh, challenging the system. So, yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for asking that. 
Um, okay, so here's another question um, to Reka and Ravi. You both work with residents in correctional facilities. Is there a tension in working with and within the correctional system while being highly critical of that system? Uh, how do you manage this tension? Do you want to take that first, Rekha? Oh, I, I would love to. Um, that's, that's a very good question, uh, especially uh, for, for me, since I teach humanities and I get to sort of uh, at, uh, at the university, you get to decide what you're teaching and what you are teaching under the guise of humanity. So I'm very much teaching um, material that critiques carcerality and the prison industrial complex. And they're reading um, a whole range of intellectuals from Angela Davis to Michelle Alexander to Isabel Wilkerson, uh, Foucault, um, you know, every, um, uh, they're reading quite a bit and they ask for more. Um, so generally, the way to manage that tension is that the classroom is a sacral space within the prison. It is located within the prison, but the classroom itself is ours. So it is our classroom. It is um, run by the faculty, and then the students are very much agents of change and learning in there. So the interference is it's it's a, it's sort of a, an issue that remains a bit oblique. So unless you you're pressing certain buttons or somehow calling attention to yourself. Uh, it feels like um, generally you can do what you do uh, and, and continue to do. So when there is a count, such as when the guard comes in to do the count, you stop, you stop because the count is going on. You stop talking, then they leave. And then you continue to talk about um, critiquing the system. So, so <laughs> I don't know if that's a great answer, but the students really, uh, love that space and it's a space of privilege within the prison to make your way to the classroom it's a very rarefied small population that gets to do that I think the education that's offered within the prisons should be offered to a vastly greater number of individuals um, but the few who make it to the university within the penitentiary they call it Penn State mm -hmm. is um, very small it should be larger yeah, I, I think I would just echo um, what Reiko was saying. I mean, there's always this negotiation happening between um, those who teach in prisons and the administrators and the DOC. I, I, in correction, I list uh, some of the book, uh, list of banned books. And there was a weekly list and every week, a new thing would be posted about what couldn't be let in. And sometimes it was the most random. I mean, it would be pages 59 to 64 of Men's Health. It would not be, I'd be like, oh, what's in there, you know? Uh, yeah, and so there is this um, intentional suppression of knowledge. And so um, when I, uh, I ran some um, writing workshops at the York Correctional Institute, a women's prison in Connecticut, and um, I, uh, like Rekha, would not really talk about what I was teaching. They knew that there was this poetry workshop happening. Um, but then when within that space, um, I would bring them all kinds of literature and they were really grateful. Um, I know it's been more difficult, uh, apparently, during um, COVID because a lot of books and other things have not been getting in. Um, and I am at, uh, currently teaching at Tufts, which is one of, um, in Massachusetts, um, they have actually a prison education program where you can take classes on the inside and get credits, and they can transfer out to local community colleges. And it's very rare and a pretty progressive pro program, a lot of states. I mean, my uh, own... Um, experience was that uh, the arts uh, was being suppressed at the Hartford Correctional Center. There used to be a beautiful library, apparently, that had been stripped away um, under the uh, this idea that men were researching their cases and it was costing the state. But I felt like 
there is this kind of suppression of um, uh, literacy and, and education. And, and these are the very things that you need to reintegrate, right? I mean, everything I saw was dysregulated and worked against kind of mental health. And I'm a big firm believer of bi in bibliotherapy and telling your stories and thereby um, healing, uh, kind of confronting your own trauma and, and gaining ownership and possession. And you can only do that if you read and you write. And I, I totally agree. I mean, um, a very small amount of people are able to go to school. It is based on good time and um, you can get that privilege revoked and most of the general population did not have any access, though they had a lot of interest. Uh, they wanted um, something to do because otherwise you're just sitting around wasting your time. I can just chime in on that because it's uh, it, it, it's something that happened with Maine Inside Out. We did initially start our work in uh, a youth youth uh, detention facility. Uh, we no longer do that, um, and part of it is because I think we were successfully subversive. Um, you know, we are an abolitionist organization, and we we didn't make qualms about it, but we were quiet about it initially. Our goal was to eventually see the end of youth prisons in Maine at least, and, and hopefully on a larger scale. And during the time when we started, we were looking at 200 some odd uh, youth uh, incarcerated there. Currently there's about 30 and there are multiple bills that we are, that we are looking at that, that we could see would shut down the facility. So um, that is, you know, we, we, we used to be kind of quiet about it, but the nature is that human beings don't, aren't, aren't meant to be confined. And I think when people awaken to that nature, it becomes very confrontational to the structure. So it's, it's something that we've definitely encountered head on. We had a few more um, questions from the chat that I don't wanna um, to lose time for. So uh, just maybe a couple more. Uh, from your conversations with the incarcerated folks, did, what did you see as top areas that need to be addressed systemically? For example, I recently listened to a talk by Dr. Tricia Rose about structural barriers like housing, education, et cetera, resulting in significantly worse outcomes for marginalized groups. Mm, yeah, well, well, there's a long list. And I will say, um, I was just out in Utah uh, and I read from the memoir alongside this um, amazing documentary, Belly of the Beast, which is about forced sterilization of women prisoners in California, which was happening as recently as a decade ago. Um, and so, I mean, I, and I mentioned that because one of the top things uh, I would say is definitely the inferior healthcare uh, on the inside. I mean, you, there is, uh, it feels like if you are incarcerated, that should be punishment enough. You don't need this another layer of sadistic uh, kind of uh, dysregulation on top of it. But that's, I mean, uh, from uh, kind of uh, mental health, the physical health, um, those kinds of things. And then the, the support network that exists um, on the outside. I mean, a lot of times probation and these halfway houses are a detriment for these men to reintegrate. You have to meet your probation officer every day in the middle of the day. Well, you know, how, what kind of job can you hold? And um, they're really, um, it feels sometimes like um, the, the system is kind of incentivized in some way to see people fail and it's set up for failure. Um, and so that, and yeah, I mean, yes, housing, 
Um, the organizations, I, I, I read a little bit from the epilogue, but that work with helping men reintegrate. I, I just was talking to this uh, guy, Donnell, and he, you know, he told me, uh, you know, before I got in, I, I was a musician, uh, I you know, wanted to get my degree. And now that I'm, I'm getting out, they're telling me the only thing I can do is work at Dunkin' Donuts and that I should be happy to have you know, some low level retail job. And so they, I'm not being respected for the complexity of who I am and what I'm able to provide and bring. And so, um, you know, this phrase that's thrown around, uh, I think is really important, intentional inclusion, right? Um, being intentionally inclusive. And so kind of realizing that we want, uh, we're stronger as a community and a workforce when we can bring in these different voices, whether they're aged or neurodivergent and certainly people who have been incarcerated. And when we know one in three African-American men is gonna be arrested at some point in their life, yes. We wanna try to, um, make a space, um, hold a space and create a space for these uh, men and women to, to join the workforce and to find community because that's really, that's the thing that will stop reoffending and re um, lower rates of recidivism. I just wanted to say thank you again to Reka and Dr. Ravi Shankar and Bruce uh, King. Uh, the, a really interesting conversation. I think we probably all could have stayed on here for another hour or two. There's so much to talk about and so many things that uh, that that we don't realize in our daily lives um, that that are being brought up by this book. So thank you for spending time with us and um, enjoy your day. Stay safe. Bye.